According to the American biophysicist Alfred Lotka, any population, whether bacteria, plants or human beings, tend to grow in size as long as there is enough available energy. Lotka was keen to explore the energetics of evolution, that is, to understand evolution as a process involving the capture and transmission of energy. Pretty much like a car that run needs space and gasoline, living beings move and reproduce ingesting organic matter as a fuel. Like this mold spread over this orange, humans conquered our planet, space and energy being the limiting factors. Homo sapiens is the one and only species who spread from green valleys, reaching areas such as islands or deserts where organic matter is scarce. The reproductive success of our species is mainly due to our consistent ability to discover new sources of energy and to optimize their use. The geological rise of the East African Rift Valley, something like 6 million years ago, led the local vegetation to turn from woody forest to savanna. Formerly tree-dwelling primates were then forced to adapt to life on open grasslands. This environmental transformation sparked the first major evolutionary change in the history of mankind, the development of upright gait. Definitely useful to keep and check predators, provided the availability of trees where to take shelter on. This is considered by evolutionary scientists as the moment when the earliest stage of the human line, known as hominids, diverged from the common evolutionary line of apes. During the last century, many theories have been proposed to explain the evolution of the human upright posture and locomotion. Most of them are somehow intertwined and nearly all are associated with energy efficiency. A thinner and vertical body can thermoregulate better while wading in cold water or running on a hot day can better move in an open field, expand the diet from plant food to include insects and carcasses, and therefore can find more calories. Walking upright freed up the front limbs for other uses, such as protect cubs or hold objects, leading to other evolutionary achievements, a deeper interpersonal relationship and the use of tools. With free hands, stones were first thrown to defend or to attack. Then, glassy stones were modified to break, chop and cut. Tool manufacture was probably as much a cause as an effect of greater brain power. As early humans experimented with more complex tools, they came to rely more on cognitive faculties. This resulted in evolutionary growth in the corresponding areas of the brain. However, a larger brain also entails a greater energetic cost. About 20% of our food intake goes to the brain, even though it's only 2% of our body mass. The human brain demands more than twice as many calories as the chimpanzee brain, and up to five times more calories than the brains of small mammals like squirrels or rabbits. While grass and leaves have plenty of fiber, not very tasty. Then, to pull out the few calories available, herbivores feed all day long and have evolved big digestive systems. For a gorilla, to get enough extra energy to grow a brain as big as ours, it would have to eat another 2 hours a day, on top of the 9 hours it already spends feeding. The gorilla evolutionary line chose to stay put in the forest and keep relying on leaves and roots. But in the open savanna, there is no such forest, and some 4 million years ago, small hominids acquired a taste for fat and proteins. The shift from a scavenger to a hunter behavior allowed access to the extra calories needed to feed the larger and more complex brain that was on the way. This is why we crave for what today is known as junk food. Most mammals lose heat by panting and not by sweating, 
So when they run on a hot day, such as those in Africa, they badly thermoregulate and are prone to heat stroke. Moreover, quadrupeds such as a zebra or a deer can breathe only following limbs movements, whereas bipedal human runners can decouple breathing and gait cycles. A buffalo is powerful and fast when running for short distances, but definitely not efficient in the long run. Early bipedal hunters were able to pursue the prey at speeds that force it to run inefficiently, bringing it to exhaustion so that it could no longer retaliate violently. The more efficient became our energy-intensive day life, the more time we spared to rely on social connections. Since a lone hunter's chances of killing large animals were low, groups of hunters cooperated to pursue, trap, kill, slaughter and transport the meat back to the settlement. As this was beyond the ability of a single family, hunter-gatherers formed larger social groups and shared the energetic gain of collective effort and more specialized roles. The energy in bone marrow is easily accessible to the jaws of a hyena, but it's an endless task for a barehand scavenger. Tools allowed hominids to make the most of their muscle power by concentrating energy, but it was only when they learned to use fire that they were able to harness an external source of energy, that is heat. The strenuous cognitive demands of hunting, developed tools and socializing forced evolution to select once again more powerful brains, which in turn required more calories. So what feasible options were on the table to meet the needs of our energy-demanding brain? Evolution could have chosen to downsize our body, eat more or eat better. With fire, humans were able to cook food, making it more hygienic and more digestible, warm their surroundings and keep predators and insects at bay. Cooked food may have been taken as early as 1.9 million years ago, but the earliest reliable evidence for organized use of fire dates to about 500,000 years ago. Thanks to this external energy source, Homo erectus walks out of its cradle and spreads to the rest of Africa, Europe and the Far East Asia. The era of humans had started. In this sense, the discovery of fire marks a major watershed in the evolution of humanity, giving birth to what we might call Homo energeticus. Then, something like 300,000 years ago, we, Homo sapiens, come into play. Again in Africa, again a more complex brain allowed us to come up with new solutions, optimize time and energy, spread again out of Africa and eventually outcompete the other coexisting human species. Roughly 100,000 years ago, Homo sapiens switched from controlling fire to starting fire at will, using stones and dry wood to create sparks and embers. By the start of the late Stone Age, about 40,000 years ago, human mastery of fire had advanced to the point of using lamps that burned animal fats. Those prehistoric societies that evolved amidst a more reliable food supply naturally saw a gradual increase in social complexity, permanent settlements, high population density, large-scale food storage, social stratification and elaborate rituals to deepen social connections. 20,000 years ago, the Earth was still in the grip of its most recent ice age. Polar ice caps extended southward to the latitudes of modern-day London and New York, and mammoths roamed across the tundras of Europe and Asia. Crouching in the sparse, wind-gnarled bushes, two groups of hunters, very different in gait and appearance, stare out into the open plains. Wolves and humans competed for the same prey, and had the social systems that enabled them to hunt in packs. They learned to fear and eventually respect each other, and they finally discovered the advantages of teaming up. For the wolf, the human use of weapons meant an occasional taste of larger prey, such as mammoth. 
For humans, uh, the wolf's speed and ferocity was uh, the equivalent of a new weapon. Roughly 10,000 years ago, not long after we began to breed dogs as hunting partners, humans uh, domesticated sheep and goats, giving us a reliable source of energy in the form of ready-to-get milk and meat. Counting on more energy and more time available, Homo sapiens realized also that few seeds could be spared for the next season. Animal domestication and early forms of cultivation led the move away from subsistence, hunting and gathering to agriculture. Agriculture emerged independently in the Fertile Crescent, South Asia, Oceania, Africa Sahel and several parts of the Americas. By 4000 BCE, agriculture was widely practiced in many of the fertile regions of the world, and cattle, pigs, horses, and dromedary camels had also been domesticated. Highly organized net fishing of rivers, lakes, and ocean shores also brought in great volumes of food. So profound were the changes to human lifestyle brought by this new relationship to food energy that anthropologists refer to this as the Neolithic Revolution. Agriculture and the domestication of animals changed the human's energetic pathways and our cultural evolution. Not only did agriculture give us a stable and predictable food supply, but Thanks to selective cultivation, it gave us varieties of plants with far higher energy yields than are found in the wild. Through photosynthesis, plants use the energy coming from the sun to convert carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and water from the soil into sugar, starch and cellulose. A wild cereal grass converts into biomass only 0.3% of the sunlight energy that strikes its leaves. A modern strain has a conversion rate 10 times higher. Agriculture allowed humans to maintain a relatively stable environment, thus ensuring a more predictable future. The reduced daily pressure to secure food allowed humans to devote time to other pursuits. The refinement of tools and language the construction of more permanent settlements and the development of very complex social relationships. So complex that to deal with today most of us need a shrink. Agriculture fostered all our cultural achievements. Were we to try to express this in an equation to rival Einstein's, we might say that E plus T equals C. Or energy through an abundant food source plus time through the predictability of that energy source equals culture. For millennia, wood dung and crop residues were the main fuel sources for heating and cooking. Indeed, these are still important domestic fuels in many countries today. In some parts of Tibet, animal dung accounts for a large part of a household energy. Dung is laid on top of walls to dry up. Oil lamps burning animal and vegetable fats have been used since the Paleolithic age 40,000 years ago, while the more practical and versatile candle using plant and animal waxes was developed just 2,000 years ago. Lamps and candles remained the principal method of lighting right until the early 19th century. But then we realized that wood could be used for other applications, particularly as a building material and as the raw material for charcoal. Wood is made of lignin, which consists of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. By superheating the wood, we can remove the hydrogen and oxygen atoms in the form of water, leaving pure carbon. This is what happens in the earth crust in millions of years. Wood from forests turns into coal. And this is what a charcoal kiln produces in a few days. Even in dry wood, there is still a lot of water and it's heavy. The ability to make charcoal was developed about 5,000 years ago. Being totally dry, charcoal is lighter than wood and it provides a fuel with a greater energy density. Charcoal also produces far less smoke, so it is well suited for indoor cooking. But by far its most significant application was in the smelting of metals, which opened up the way for vastly more effective tools and weapons.
The desire for a more stable source of food led humans to domesticate wild animals, sheep and goats initially, followed by pigs, oxen and chickens. Humankind also realized that it could take advantage of certain animals' greater strength to pull sleds, plows and wheeled wagons. Thus, about 6,000 years ago, the ox became our first beast of burden. A millennium later, the first wild horses were captured from the steppes of Central Asia and bred for food. Not long after, this animal's potential as a source of labor was discovered and literally harnessed. From the middle of the second millennium BCE onward, horses became central to almost every human activity, from agriculture to industry and from trade to war. The horsepower accompanied us well into the industrial era, and as late as the 1930s, horse-drawn carts were a common sight in industrialized cities. Humankind's quest for energy began with tools that concentrated our muscle power, continued with the use of fire for heat, light and cooking, later involved the cultivation through agriculture of secure high-energy foods, and eventually led us to harness the muscle power of larger animals. The following leap forward was the invention of machines that could run without the involvement of human or animal muscles. Scientists refer to such machines which convert a naturally occurring source of energy into mechanical power as prime movers. Around the 3rd century BCE, the power of running water was first harnessed by ancient Greeks. Over the next millennium, water wheel technology spread throughout the Mediterranean and to most of Asia and Northern Europe. While the design and efficiency of these machines improved steadily over time, medieval water mills had a power output of only a few kilowatts, roughly the equivalent to a few modern hair dryers. Nevertheless, the water wheel remained the most efficient pre-industrial prime mover and was a key factor in Europe's technical supremacy during the early stages of industrialization. The second most important pre-industrial prime mover was the windmill. Windmills were first used in Persia around the 10th century. As the name suggests, these were used to mill grain and later to pump water for irrigation. Despite these and numerous other innovations, the way energy was used did not substantially change from prehistoric times to the 18th century. At that time, people were still using animal muscle for work and transport, animal and vegetable fats for lighting, biomass for heating, and methods of agriculture that had not greatly changed for millennia. This all changed with the Industrial Revolution. What began in England, thanks to plentiful and easily accessible coal reserves, spread to Europe and the United States and eventually reached most of the world. Simple machines based on the ability to harness the power of steam have been dated as far back as ancient Alexandria, but it was the significant adaptations of Thomas Newcomen and James Watt in the mid-1700s that gave birth to the modern steam engine, opening up a world of possibility. The steam engine and new tools allowed, for the first time, thermal energy to be converted into mechanical energy then into motion, or kinetic energy, driving a wide variety of machines. While mechanical work derived from water and wind had been practiced for centuries, the new machines allowed for great advances in scale, speed and efficiency. A single steam engine powered by coal dug from the mines of England and Appalachia could do the work of dozens of horses. Just as horsepower improved the early farmers' ability to work the land, the harnessing of thermal energy through the steam engine allowed a leap forward in manufacturing. More stable than wind and water, and less expensive than a full of horses, coal-based steam engines were soon powering locomotives, factories and farm implements. 
the invention of steam engines set in motion a chain reaction of innovation and consumption that continues to this day. As people moved from villages to cities to work in factories, their habits of energy consumption changed. As European and American populations exploded in the 19th century, so too did the pressure on existing energy resources. Just as we face the challenge of diminishing fossil fuel resources today, societies of the 19th century had to find ways to replace wood and organic oils, up to then the principal fuels for heating, cooking and lighting. The first country in the world to break its reliance on biomass fuel was England. Because of the twin demands of building, mainly ships and houses, and fuel, mainly for industry and domestic needs, most of the great English forests had already been cut down by the mid-1500s. The only way to avoid economic collapse was to find an alternative fuel. That alternative was coal. Coal was not exactly a new discovery. It had been used as early as 200 BCE by the Chinese and in Europe since Roman times. From the second half of the 16th century onward, coal was mined extensively in England and Scotland, and by 1700 it had replaced wood as the main heating fuel. This early adoption of coal and the resulting head start in terms of extraction methods and technologies made Britain the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. The development of railways allowed coal to be transported cheaply over long distances. The Industrial Revolution changed not only the amount of energy consumed, but also the way it was used. While coal was initially a good fuel for locomotives, the more efficient internal combustion engine, the one used in cars and boats, demanded high-energy liquid fuels. This demand led to the discovery of our most versatile fuel source to date, mineral oil. The ancient Chinese, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks and Romans had known about and used petroleum as a fuel for lighting and heating. However, it was not until the 19th century that oil was used on an industrial scale. This was because oil was difficult to extract and, compared to coal, inefficient in its raw state. Candles and lamp oil were expensive and therefore used sparingly by old but wealthy. Instead, people sat around fires at night, exchanging stories or performing stationary work such as mending clothes or tools. With the Industrial Revolution came a great migration into cities, rapid population growth and the availability of much cheaper factory-made goods. In cities, people were less inclined and usually couldn't afford to limit their daily work to the hours of natural light. This fostered the demand for lighting oil and begat the whaling industry. Sperm whales yielded oils that burned far more cleanly and brightly than other animal fats did. By the time Herman Melville published the Moby Dick in 1851, the US whaling fleet alone numbered 700 ships and was unloading 160,000 barrels of whale oil each year in the ports of New England. As whale population rapidly declined, coal, gas and kerosene came to the rescue of both the whales and the human consumers. The world's first oil tycoon was neither a Texan cowboy nor an Arab sheikh. Ignacio Okashevich, a Polish pharmacist from the town of Gorlis on the fringes of the Austrian Empire, had experimented for several years with ways of distilling petroleum. His breakthrough came in 1853 when the local hospital borrowed one of his kerosene lamps to conduct an emergency operation at night. Impressed by how brightly and cleanly the lamp burned, the hospital placed an order for more lamps and fuel. Okashevich soon abandoned his pharmacy business to concentrate on the commercial application of his discovery. Within 10 years, he was not only mass-producing kerosene and lamps, but was also the owner of several oil wells. 
For years, petroleum had been a nuisance, contaminating wells for drinking water. Initially sold by hucksters as medicine, oil became a valuable commodity for lighting as the oil industry declined. The first large commercial oil fields were tapped in the Caucasus region in the late 19th century. By the turn of the century, oil processed into gasoline was firing internal combustion engines. The discovery of major oil fields was accompanied by the invention of new transportation technology. Horseless carriages were a rich man's toy until Henry Ford perfected the assembly line method for mass production for his Model T. Interestingly enough, electric cars were a rich woman's toy at the same time. Quiet and clean electric cars started without a starter crank, an exertion that would have overtaxed the gentle ladies of the day. When gas cars adopted electric starters, their superior range quickly drove the electrics out of the market. The age of mass mobility had begun. The development of fossil fuel transportation removed one of the greatest limitations on land transport. Until the 19th century, raw materials, goods and people could only be transported over land using the muscle power of horses, oxen or camels. This made the land transport costly and slow, and as a result only high-value goods such as silk, precious stones and spices were transported this way. The reliance on animal power for land transport extended well into the 20th century. Railways initially took over the function of long-distance transport, but the horse was still needed to transport goods and people within the rapidly growing cities of Europe and North America. By the end of the 19th century, in London, there were 300,000 working horses, one for every 20 people. However, once the internal combustion engine reached the mass production, by the 1920s in Europe and North America, horses quickly disappeared from the streets of western cities. By the 1930s, all the world's leading economies were heavily dependent on oil. And by the middle of the century, many of the world's biggest oil fields had been discovered. Primary among these were the immense oil fields of the Persian Gulf region, which hold, by present estimates, two-thirds of the world's reserves. We tend to think of our modern dependence on oil largely in terms of gasoline, yet the role of oil in modern industrial economies goes far deeper. As well as providing the basis of most transport fuels, oil is also the raw material for most fertilizer and pesticides, various chemicals, plastics, artificial fibers, lubricants and asphalt. A trip to the supermarket by car relies on oil in many more ways than just transportation fuel. First, there is the car itself, which except for the chassis and engine is largely made from oil-derived polymers. Second, the roads on which we drive are usually constructed using asphalt. Finally, many of the clothing items, most of the packaging and much of the food we may buy at the store are produced with the direct or indirect involvement of mineral oil. Most of us are aware of the importance of petroleum oil in satisfying the energy needs of modern civilization, so it has become axiomatic to refer to our modern age as the age of oil, yet it would be more correct to call it the fossil fuel age since coal remains a much utilized and indeed growing fossil fuel for electricity production. Natural gas, the most recently harnessed of the fossil fuels, could soon rival oil in importance. A mixture of methane, butane, propane and other hydrocarbons, natural gas occurs either alongside mineral oil or dissolved within it. Like oil, natural gas has been known to humans for millennia. The earliest known use of natural gas was in China during the Han Dynasty 200 BCE, when it was siphoned from shallow underground pockets with bamboo tubing and used to boil seawater for salt production. But natural gas is even harder than oil to utilize because of its volatility. 
and until the early part of the 20th century, most natural gas associated with oil was either simply released into the air or flared at facility. In fact, the first industrial-scale gaseous fuel was not natural gas, but town gas, a synthetic derivative of coal. Much of the street and domestic lighting in European and North American cities of the late 19th and early 20th century was provided by town gas. Gas works were an iconic feature of many industrialized towns and cities until the 1960s, by which time town gas had been largely replaced by electricity and natural gas. Natural gas is clean and emits much less carbon dioxide than coal. This is why natural gas has become the preferred fuel of the modern age for heating, cooking and electricity generation. One could argue that we are still living through the Industrial Revolution, as most of our energy is still generated by burning fossil fuels. The main difference today is that we have added a new link to the energy conversion chain – electricity. The industrial generation of electricity represents an energy revolution in its own right. While the ancient Greeks had some understanding of electricity, it remained a scientific curiosity until the early 19th century. Thanks to the work of scientists such as Michael Faraday and Thomas Edison, electrical power was generated and harnessed for a variety of purposes. Faraday led the way by discovering electrical induction, that a magnet moving within a copper coil will generate electrical current. This paved the way for the first electrical turbines, capable of converting mechanical to electrical energy. From this moment, any shaft put in motion by water, wind or fossil fuel-based engine could generate electricity. Edison's contribution to the development of electricity was even more profound. Like James Watt, the one who brought the steam engine to the commercial stage, Edison was both a scientist and a businessman. This gave him a strong incentive to develop the machines for generating electricity and to provide a commercial system to transmit and distribute it. He invented numerous devices capable of using electrical current, most famously the incandescent light bulb. In 1880, coal-powered steam engine attached to the world's first electric generator. Thomas Edison's plant in New York City provided the first electric light to Wall Street and the New York Times. Only a year later, the world's first hydroelectric plant went online in Appleton, Wisconsin. Within a few years, Henry Ford hired his friend Edison to help build a small hydro plant to power his home in Michigan. Fast-flowing rivers that had turned wheels to grind corn were now grinding out electricity instead. The great advantage of electricity over combustion fuels is that it is rapidly and efficiently transportable and can be converted to other forms of energy – mechanical, thermal, light – at relatively high rates of efficiency. Moreover, it is clean at the point of consumption and can be made available instantaneously, literally at a flick of a switch. With the low-cost automobile and the spread of electricity, our society's energy use changed significantly. Power plants became larger and larger. Power lines extended hundreds of kilometers between cities, bringing electricity to rural areas. Cheap cars made suburbs possible, which in turn made cheap cars necessary, feeding the cycle of suburban sprawl. Energy use grew quickly, doubling every 10 years. The cost of energy production then declined steadily, and by the 1970s the efficient use of energy was simply not a concern. The Battle of Mons was one of the first engagements of the First World War. It began in August 1914, when British cavalry happened upon their German counterparts on the French-Belgian border. The British riders chased the Germans for several kilometers before dismounting and engaging them in a gun battle. 
Imagine muskets or swords in place of rifles and a very similar battle could have taken place several centuries before. Yet just 30 years later the technology of warfare had been transformed, driven by enormous investment in military research through two world wars, the second of which ended with the discovery and use of a vastly more destructive weapon than any hitherto known. Nuclear fission is a reaction that splits apart the uranium nucleus into smaller elements releasing huge amounts of energy. This represented a huge technological breakthrough as just one kilogram of uranium may release as much energy as that of 2000 tons of coal. At that time many believed that this heralded an age of limitless energy. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the scientists who led the Manhattan Project, said of this new technology. It has led us up those last few steps to the mountain pass and beyond there is a different country. Louis Strauss, chairman of the United States Atomic Energy Commission, claimed in a 1954 speech our children will enjoy in their homes electrical energy too cheap to meter. These claims were not as illusory as they may seem today. They were based not on the promise of nuclear fission, but on the belief that using the most abundant element of the universe, that is hydrogen, humans would one day harness the most primal energy source of all, that of stars. As opposed to nuclear fission, which breaks apart heavy elements such as uranium, the energy released by the Sun and in turn life on Earth is the result of the fusion of two hydrogen atoms into one atom of helium. As of today, nuclear power plants produce electricity with nuclear fission based on uranium. The bright side of this technology is that it produces electricity with no greenhouse gas emission. But the downsides are many, the huge cost of construction, the still unsolved problem of radioactive wastes disposal and the risk of nuclear accidents. Nuclear fusion seems to have no downsides, but unfortunately the commercial stage of a nuclear fusion based power plant has many technological issues and for many years to come it will remain in the heart of physicists and in the mind of engineers. Until the industrial revolution all the external energy sources used by humans animal power, wood, wind and water were renewable. Since then we have become so dependent on fossil fuels that they eventually have started driving most of the international geopolitics. At the end of World War II, seven Western companies controlled most of the world's oil production. These so-called majors worked the bountiful oil fields that straddled the Persian Gulf and their dominance helped to fuel America's economic expansion and Europe's recovery after the war. The first challenge to this dominance came in 1950 when the king of Saudi Arabia negotiated an increased share in oil revenues. Over the following 20 years, political tensions between the Middle East and the West led to the nationalization of oil production and the establishment of OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. In the 1970s, fossil fuels accounted for 87% of global energy production. Considering that rich countries' economies rely on oil and that oil reserves are mostly concentrated around the Persian Gulf, no wonder that the two oil crises of the 1970s sent shock waves through the global economy. Concerns were about the future viability of fossil fuels and most of all about energy independence. The response of oil consuming states was the quest for alternatives. The share of natural gas and coal in the energy mix increased steadily and politics and research concentrated mostly on nuclear and renewables. As a result, technologies such as wind turbines and photovoltaic solar panels, which had until then only been used for very specific and limited purposes, were developed for commercial use. 
But things have changed less than expected since the first oil crisis in 1973 global energy production has doubled, which means that today we consume twice as much energy as in the 70s. Nevertheless, the energy mix has not dramatically changed. Only nuclear power has significantly increased roughly from 1 to 5%. Renewables, mostly represented by biomass, have increased from 12 to 14%. And in 50 years, fossil fuels have decreased their share just by 6 points, roughly from 87 to 81%. Even though the promise of energy independence and a more diversified energy mix has been a mainstay of Western politics into the 21st century, it is far from realization today as it was in the 70s. Energy independence remains so elusive because not unlike promises of full employment and uninterrupted growth, it is simply not realistic. Energy is today the most globalized of all commodities, and all countries, importers and exporters alike, are bound to the markets. By the late 20th century, an additional impetus for energy sources alternative to fossil fuels had emerged, concern about global warming and climate change. Today, nearly 8 billion people live our planet. But for the long period from the appearance of modern Homo sapiens up to the Neolithic Revolution, it is estimated that the total world population was often well under 1 million. Our species was often seriously threatened by extinction. Since the Neolithic up to the Industrial Revolution, the global population grew slowly by 0.04% per year, and around the year 1800 the world population was around 1 billion. The transition from pre-industrial to industrial societies, and then to our modern economy, corresponds to a progression from traditional renewable energy to fossil fuels. In more recent years, we have also gained access to nuclear power and the so-called modern renewables such as photovoltaic, wind power and energy crops. Throughout our history, exploitation and addition of new, higher quality energy sources has opened up to virtuous paths where food has become more secure, hospitals and schools have increased both in numbers and efficiency, transports have allowed a more intense exchange of goods, and thanks to mass media, the spread of knowledge and culture has skyrocketed. As a result, health has improved and mortality has declined. The increasing availability of cheap energy has been integral to the progress we have seen over the past few centuries. And according to the United Nations, Energy is central to nearly every major challenge and opportunity the world faces today. After World War II, growth rose quickly to a peak of roughly 2% in the 1960s, the highest rate the world has ever known. Since then, the pace has been slowing down, and today it is just over 1% per year. One of the big lessons from the demographic history is that population explosions are temporary. Current slowdown was not only predictable but predicted. The population bomb has been diffused as fertility rates fall almost everywhere. Nevertheless, due to this 1% growth rate, the world population will continue to grow before stabilizing around 10 billion people by 2100. But notably enough, nearly all of this last growth will be in the less developed countries. Most countries in Africa and Asia still rely on biomass as their primary source of energy. However, they still have high population growth rates. How can there be a correlation between energy and population under these circumstances? The so-called Green Revolution is a set of technology transfer initiatives occurring between the 50s and the 60s. That increased agricultural production worldwide. Fertilizers and pesticides that aided the green revolution and population growth in much of the developing world could not have been produced without large oil and gas inputs provided by highly developed countries. Boats, trains and planes that transport goods and people all run on oil. 
Vaccines and antibiotics that reduce mortality in poor countries are discovered, produced and distributed by rich countries, and fossil fuels contribute at every single step of the chain. Traditional biomass may still be a primary energy source in many poor countries, but their population growth is due in large part to abundant oil and gas supplies managed by rich countries. While many developing countries remain low-energy societies and energy commodities are very unevenly distributed on our planet, the high-energy societies have a profound impact on the low-energy societies. Together with the population growth, environmental impact has come into play. The eightfold increase of the world population over the last two centuries amplified humanity's impact on the natural environment. We enjoy the fruits of a more stable and reliable energy supply, that is, lower mortality and more widespread connections. However, we put a blind eye on the byproducts of our industrial processes. Forests are still being cut, wastes are released in water and soil, and exhausts into the air. The last great energy transformation of the 20th century was the rediscovery of renewable energy. This began with the water power and the construction of large dams with the turbines to, to produce electricity. In many countries, hydropower played a major role in industrial development and urbanization. And up until now, it is increasing in capacity and importance in several countries. With an installed capacity of 22 gigawatts, the Three Gorges Dam in China is the largest power plant in the world, a capacity three times bigger than the largest nuclear power plant. But there is no such a free lunch. Hydropower to run needs time for the reservoir to be refilled with rainwater, so it can only work for a few hours a day. Similar issues are at play with solar and wind, whose energy production is not as stable and lasting in time as that coming from fossil fuels. Moreover, big dams, wind farms and land cleared to make space for solar panels impact both at the social and ecological level. In the last decades, our ability to modify the environment we live in has moved from the local to the global scale. Today, logging in Brazil, oil palm plantations in Indonesia, shale gas and bituminous sands in North America, coal-fired power plants in China, the relocation of people along the River Nile for dams construction, the fear for nuclear disasters, desertification and migration to Europe are only examples of processes that directly or indirectly affect the day life of every single human being of the world. The burning of fossil fuels for electricity and heat generation is the largest single source of global greenhouse gas emission. But if we consider that emissions from industry primarily involve fossil fuels burned on-site at energy facilities, that modern transportation and agriculture do not rely anymore on animal muscle, that houses are warmed up burning fossil fuels and cooled down with electricity produced mostly by coal-based power plants, and that energy is needed to build dams, solar panels, wind turbines and power lines, we understand that energy is directly or indirectly responsible for almost all global emissions. Since the 1980s, the concept of sustainable development has come into force in international laws. Environmental protection is not anymore an issue discussed by few but intellectuals and scientists. It is definitely a process that affects the layman's day life and, in turn, the political agenda. It is true that many humankind's technological innovations have resulted from increased population densities. Demand-induced innovation led to the shift from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural societies, and from the use of wood to coal, then to oil, gas, nuclear power, and eventually to the so-called new renewables. Therefore, one can speculate that a shortage of fossil fuels caused by population pressures will lead to yet more innovations and the discovery of newer and better sources of energy. 
However, it is not clear yet what these innovations might be or what new energy sources will be able to replace fossil fuels. To provide enough space, food, resources and peace, that is to provide sufficient and sustainable energy for a large world population, is without question the most serious challenge for our generation. I got a feeling called the blues, oh lord, just my baby say goodbye. Such a beautiful dream. I hate to think it's all over. I've lost my heart, it seems. I've grown so used to somehow. Satisfied, but she just wouldn't stay. So now.